Cool. Welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes, and if I haven't met you uh, and this is your first time here, I just want to say I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, people ask me sometimes, what, like, what's the deal with Reformed University Fellowship, RUF? Like, why, like <laughs> what does that mean? Why didn't you choose kind of like a generic nature word, like the Deep Root uh, Fellowship or... You know, uh, Chosen Stone Fellowship or something. I don't know. <laughs> Some random kind of Christian nature word. <laughs> Why do you do that? Uh, because RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, part of what we mean by Reformed is we don't have it together. And that we continually need to be reformed. See what I did there? By God's word. And the gospel, which is why we come together on Wednesday nights, and why we meet in community groups, and why we sit and have coffee with one another. We talk about what's good in our lives, what's hard in our lives, and where Jesus is meeting us. Because we have to hold out in front of us the fact that we're being reformed, being changed, being made new. We could just sing about by God through Christ. And so that's what RUF kind of means. That's what uh, Reformed Usually Fellowship here at UNC is about. That's what I'm about. And, my ministry to y'all, and so I just kind of want to lay that out there, because I know that sometimes we can get wrapped up um, in the name and not really think about what it means, actually. So, that being said, let me dive into this. Uh, I don't think that we often think about it, and as Americans, we're kind of notoriously individualistic, but something that's just hardwired into the way that people deal with one another is through representatives, through a mediator, through someone else, kind of a go-between If you've ever wanted to be a lawyer, then you've wanted to represent one party in court. Uh, When Katie and I bought a house, we approached a realtor, and, you know, she helped us, and she negotiated with us. I never saw the person I bought my house from. That was so weird to me. Um, I kind of had in my head that, like, they would hand me a deed, and I would hand them, like, a giant, like, like huge check (laughs) on cardboard, and then, like, they would throw some keys in my hands, and we'd kind of walk out the door, right? Like, (laughs) that never happened. It was just, like, this lady... We talked to her. She said, okay, I'll make an offer. She said, uh, we got it, thumbs up. And then I signed like 60 pages of uh, legal documents. And that's how we got our house. It was awesome. Through representative. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of days about Cam Newton and about his attitude after the Super Bowl loss. Have you thought about why people uh, would care about one football player and why he act, uh, how he acts after a huge game? Like, why is that? Because he's not just any football player, he's the quarterback, right? He's the best player on the team, and when he speaks, he speaks for the whole organization. He's a representative. People are worked about the way that primaries are starting to go. Hillary or Bernie, Cruz or Trump. Uh, it's a big deal who will represent which party and then who will be elected president because the president represents America, represents in some way on all of us on the world stage. And the policies and the things they say shape us, guide us, and represent us to the world. Almost on every level, you know intuitively that there are situations where you just need a win. And you use somebody who's wiser and stronger and more experienced and just has kind of an in where you don't. Like, that's the nature of relationships, right? And the Bible says it is exactly the same way between us and God. That from all the way back in Adam to Jesus, that we have representatives that stand before us and plead for us, work out our case, and that when God deals with them, he's dealing with us. You see, we need someone who is wiser, stronger, nicer, who doesn't get hangry, uh, hungry, angry, if you don't know that word. Uh, I learned it from Tina Fey. Uh, (laughs) We need someone who, according to the Bible, has the quality of being righteous. That is someone who, just by the nature of being who they are, is right with God. 
And at the same time, God needs someone who is on his level, but who can sympathize with us. And the word the Bible uses for that mediator is priest. We don't have to think about it, I think. Um, But this is a big deal. Because this priest represents God's interest to the people. And at the same time, he represents the people to God. How God deals with this priest, with Jesus, is how he deals with his people. And as the people deal with that priest, they are dealing with the God. That is what it means for him to be our mediator, our representative, our priest. And this is huge in the Bible. So now I want to talk about three things here. Which is this. Jesus' sympathy for us as a priest. Jesus' temptation for us as a priest. And Jesus' gifts to us as a priest. His temptation, or his sympathy, his temptation, his gifts to us. So let's go jump in here. How does Jesus sympathize for us? Look at verse 15 here. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I don't know if this has ever been your sense of things, but have you felt that you're like the only one who's struggling with something? Like the only one who feels lonely? The only one who feels guilty? The only one who feels needy when you should be strong? Sad when everyone around you is happy? Tired when everyone around you is just going hard? Because Christians, I think, can have this way of coming across where we talk about our need for God's love or how we don't have it all together, but never like land that anywhere. It can be this kind of general we without ever becoming me. And people who are not Christians have seen this and they've just gotten super tired of it. Like you can feel like you say that you've met lots of people who say they need Jesus, but never actually someone who can say why. And y'all, if that's your story and you're here tonight, like for whatever it's worth, I'm sorry. Uh, the church is a hospital for sinners, and that sin comes across sometimes in such a way that the very people who know they most need God's mercy are sometimes terrified of telling you why they need it. But what if there's a community on this campus where the problem wasn't with them or this kind of general we, but what if there's a community of people who own the me, that I feel guilty, that I feel needy, that I'm tired and need to rest that I've tried to make myself seem calm on the outside, but on the inside, I'm losing my mind. Like, how would we get there? How would that community get there? I think that they would need to understand that God understands, and that God sympathizes with them, that God creates space for them to be weak and needy and to have problems, like real problems. See, the book of Hebrews is all about us helping find our story and the story that God's telling through Christ. That yes, the world is full of injustice and terror and there are things that aren't fair. There are things that are just heartbreaking. But through Jesus and his people, God is doing something about that. In the midst of it, he's doing something with you. With your weakness, with your sin, with the sense that I've just wrestled with this thing over and over and over again. And I know what he thinks about that. And I'm just not sure what he thinks about me. And you may not know how to separate your identity from your anxiety or your anger or your porn habit, but God does. What do you think that God thinks about you in that moment when panic sets in? And you have that sense that I should be stronger than this. Is he sympathetic to us? Does he write us off? Like, what does the Bible say? That's a good place to start. In Mark, shortest gospel in the New Testament, chapter 2, It says, Jesus is reclining at table in his house. So he's invited a bunch of people over to his house. They're hanging out. They're eating. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Like the worst people in kind of the the New Testament were the tax collectors, the sinners. Like these are people that are robbing from God's people. These are people who are kind of literally sometimes prostitutes or prostituting themselves. But they're like the outside people. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees, the most get it, got it together by the book, people today ask, why, Jesus, are you eating with these people? Like, imagine a small hut, not much bigger than your freshman dorm, and you walk in and Jesus is just hanging out and eating with, like, members of the Ku Klux Klan. Or drug dealers. Or insert whoever you think is committing the worst sins in our society. And he says, these are the people that I've come for. Not for the righteous, but for the sick. Does he love what they're doing? That they're robbing, that they're prostituting themselves? No. But does he love them? Yes. And we can hear that and say, well, that's great for them. That's a long time ago kind of story. But do you realize that he does that for you? Does Jesus like sinners? He loves them. And we are constantly forgetting that or finding a way to wiggle away from that. Because on some very deep, totally insane level, there's just a part of us that says, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to feel like I had to wake up proving myself every day or look great all the time or kind of go, go, go until a collapse? And Jesus approaches us with that very offer and we turn around and say, can we explore their options? That we do that in a million different ways and it's totally crazy and it just takes a lifetime to work through the truth that God is sympathetic to us. Because you know what that word means, don't you? That Jesus, the second person of Trinity, doesn't just know about our sin in some sort of distant, judgy way. But he feels deeply for us when we sin. That you want to be known and loved and you are terrified of that. And you work through that terror and... Sometimes and you're sinning against God and the people around you, and if he just let that play out, then we would suffer God's wrath against sin, which is just, but he doesn't. And then because he feels for us, he acts on our behalf. That Jesus, as it talks about here, passes down through the heavens to do something about it, dies on a cross for us, and then goes back up to represent us before God. And it just takes a lifetime to deal with that, to work that in. You, that's why you need people in your life. So we need a community of people to help us believe, even when our hearts don't believe, that your friend can believe with you and for you that Jesus loves you and feels for you in your sin and your weakness. You need that. I had had an incredible phone call this last week. Um, One of my best friends from seminary was this really incredible guy. He was probably the most articulate speaker in our seminary class. He was crazy smart. He was reading all over the place. And at the same time, he was super cool and chill and he could cook. Uh, he grew up like going to chili competitions with his granddad in Texas and like winning. Um, which if you start that when you're like seven years old, it means that when you're like 37 years old, you are amazing. Um, but when he left seminary, he decided he wasn't going to go into ministry. He kind of been living, kind of feeling this rain cloud of guilt over him and gloom, and had just not been able to feel like he was going into ministry. And so he went and became a chef instead, which is totally great. Um, that's a great way to serve God's kingdom, if that's your call. But he went into it, and he found that, you know, when I'm working, everyone around me is playing. And when I'm off and playing, everyone is working. It's incredibly lonely, incredibly, like literally a pressure cooker in the kitchen. Like trying to get stuff out, trying to plate things, trying to make every dish the same and make it perfect. And as we were talking, he just was telling me, like, there was like a six-month period where he lived on vodka and Marlboro Lights, and like it was killing him. And he talked about he had this kind of breakdown, but that in the midst of that, Jesus really met him, and he had a pastor come alongside of him and just love him through that time. 
and believe where he couldn't believe. And that he, this guy, imagine like a 230-pound burly blonde dude from Texas on the phone with me, and he's crying as he's telling me about how much Jesus has loved him and always been for him and seen the beautiful things in his life in spite of all the brokenness and the sin and the sadness and that Jesus has sympathized with him and pursued him no matter what. And that just takes a lifetime for us to believe. And it's taken my friend a long time. It's, I mean, that's, in a lot of ways, that's God's work in my life too. I think it's going to be God's work in your life as well, I hope. But that, to believe that Jesus sympathized with us. So what's Jesus' temptation for us? Um, I know I talked some about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's helpful. Jesus' temptation. Gospel of Matthew says that right after Jesus is baptized, he's driven by the Spirit out of the desert. He eats nothing for like 40 days, 40 nights. He's absolutely famished. He's at his weakest. And then what happens? The devil comes and tempts him three times. It's not like a metaphorical devil. It's not like a devil where it's this complex psychological thing going on inside of Jesus' head. It's a, the Bible always treats the devil as a real persona that has power and is working evil in the world. And he comes to Jesus and he says, turn these stones into bread if you're so hungry, which Jesus was. He says, throw yourself off this cliff and you know that your father won't allow anything to hurt you. He says, just worship me, I'll give you whatever you want. You won't have to suffer. There doesn't have to be a cross. And Jesus turns all of that down and people have gone around and around about what does that mean? What would have happened if Jesus had sinned? That's not the point of the story. Here's the point. Does any of that sound familiar? If you're so hungry, just make the bread. Rely on yourself. Throw yourself down, do whatever you want to do. There are no consequences for you. You don't have to suffer to do something great for the world. Just compromise yourself so that outwardly you look good to everyone around you, even though you know that inwardly you're a fraud. I think the temptation of a self-sufficient, consequence-free life where you compromise yourself to leapfrog ahead and achieve whatever goals you've set for yourself, like to me, I don't know about you, but to me that feels like the temptation for this time of life. And Jesus understands that. Later in the Gospels, right before the cross, Jesus is praying and saying, Father, if you would, take this cup away from me. By cup, he means drinking God's judgment for sin. Yet not my will, but your will be done. When he started his ministry, did Jesus know that he was going to the cross? Yes. Like, he's uncomfortably honest about that. Then why is he praying this? Because he's come to the brink of the moment which has been appointed for him and his temptation is to quit and stop obeying God when it's hard. He's tired, he's lonely, he's about to do the most difficult thing in history. His temptation is to quit obeying God because it's hard. And he felt that all the time. He really felt that here. And for people who start reading plans and stop, who kind of lay down on the couch again and again and again with their significant other and just tell themselves, I'm, this is so hard, I'm going to stop next week, and then you do it again. Like We need to know that Jesus is tempted to quit when things get hard. That he understands every inch of our temptation and he can do something about it. Because you realize that Jesus sees the way that our hearts are drawn to these things because he's a man who's wrestled with this stuff himself. He can say, I felt that too. I've wanted to quit too. And at the same time, because he's God, he did not give into that temptation. 
And when you put those two things together, man who knows temptation with God who's not given into it, what do you get? You get somebody who can help. All the compassion, the sympathy, the mercy of someone who's been right where you are. And at the same time, all the strength, the wisdom, the power to help you really fight those things. It's when someone can look you in the eye and say, I've sat right where you're sitting and thought those exact same thoughts. That you know they care. And they have the experience to do something about it. Whatever that is. That is a person who got hungry and sad and lonely and who lived in a fallen world with fallen people and had just as many temptations as you do. Jesus understands and can represent you before God. Yet at the same time as God in the flesh, He's overcome those temptations before Him. As man, He gets it. As God, He marshals the resources to help. Look at verses 8 and 9 here. That although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How can Jesus be made perfect? I thought he was God. Right? <laughs> Not perfect in his holiness, his wisdom, or his love, but perfect in his role as a priest. He's a perfect mediator between us and God. Totally human. Totally able to identify with us and our weakness. Totally God. Totally able to help us deal with whatever we come against. That he is a priest who offers himself up. He doesn't only just do that work, but he gives himself in his very person to save you. To help you. And what does the writer say that gets us? Confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. That when you approach God, when you sinned, what do you expect to receive? An eye roll? A disappointed sigh? Because clearly God's not blind to this. But the beauty of what Jesus has done for you is so complete, so pure, so sufficient, that operationally, as He deals with you, it is like your sins were never there. That Jesus' work on the behalf of His people is so complete that in all His dealings with you, God does not treat you as though you were ever a sinner. Have you thought about that? Then instead he treats you like he treats Jesus. Not kind of like he treats Jesus, not sort of like he treats Jesus, but exactly like he treats Jesus. Arms wide, welcome to embrace you to himself always and forever. What about when I don't feel like I love him? Always. What about all the crap in my life that I feel guilty for, and even though you say he's forgiven me, it's really hard for me to trust that. Always. He's not sympathetic towards you because you feel bad. He's sympathetic towards you because he's a priest. That it is who he is. He doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us despite who we are. That God doesn't love us because we're qualified, but he qualifies us with his love. That he gives us everything in Jesus. All right, so what? Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Y'all, this is everything. Like, this is the gospel. For some of us, I want to speak especially to those of you who are here and you're kind of wrestling with, like, what would it mean to be a Christian? Or am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? Because I think for some of us, the issue is not the felt sense of the need of a priest who's qualified and sympathetic to represent us. But I think it's, the issue is the lack of this felt sense. That maybe you think of someone who, yourself as somebody who's not religious. You have no idea who you came here. You're just kind of sitting here thinking something like, 
You know, little kids believe in stories about Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. I used to believe in those things too. But then I grew up and I realized that I needed to lump God in that category. And yeah, that makes the world a little bit of a colder place, but that's just the way it is. And I'd rather be a brave, smart adult who lives in cold reality than a dumb little kid who needs Santa Claus and Jesus to make himself feel better about the world. Like, maybe that's kind of your narrative. Y'all, before I was a Christian, I was an atheist, and that narrative was so much a part of who I was. And if that's you, just speaking from experience, I want to say that sort of story can sort of explain some of the what of the world, but very little of the why of the world. Why, if this is all just atoms and molecules, are people so lovely and so messed up at the same time? And why does hiking in the mountains with your friends make your heart sing? And why, if the concept of justice is just something that people have made up, do you get so mad when you see people hurt by the very folks who are supposed to uphold justice and order, and yet you're, they're using that to oppress the poor? How do you have a story that makes sense in a world without a why? Let me suggest something to you, if this is you. Y'all, I don't deny that at times Christianity has been used by the powerful to oppress the weak. That's just totally undeniable. But what if in the story that the Bible is telling of God making the world, the world being broken, and then God becoming an oppressed, marginalized person who dies on a cross for the injustice that we all experience and maybe participate in a little bit? And he gives us a story which is proven to be the key to many cultures and civilizations throughout history. What if in this that you actually have something that answers the why of your heart and brings with it the promise of more beauty and more life and more justice for us in the world? What if that's the case here? What would that mean for you? That Jesus stands ready here for you, just as he stood for me a long time ago. That this is for you as well if you would have it. For others of us, The reason why it can feel so hard, I think, for some of us to want to follow Jesus or want to be someone who's known as following Jesus is that at times the core motivation for us is kind of following his guilt. The way that you're living in the story is driven by fear and a deep sense that no matter what, you will never measure up. And you just need to know that Jesus loves sinners. And that if God is really God and not something that we've made up, that he on some level is going to offend us in some place in our life. And where he's really offensive here in this place is that he approaches us with the gospel and says, you know, your good things can make the world a better place and they can have value in my kingdom. But when it comes to having merit before me, none of the good stuff that you've done and none of the bad stuff that you've done can either add or subtract to your standing before me. That when you're dealing with me, that all I see is Jesus' work on your behalf. And y'all, let me just tell you, that is as freeing as it is terrifying. But the people who have best understood what this book is about have said, if you really want to drill down and deal with our guilt or our sin or how hard-hearted we are to this stuff, then deal with the fact that when Jesus represents his people before God, that they have everything that is his. And that when God's people see Jesus, they see the steadfast love of God for sinners. That the cross, both God's justice... His promise that he just cannot deal with sin in a relationship and not do something about that. He will not let sin destroy or mar his good creation. And he will act justly. 
And at the same time you see his mercy. That he loves people who are broken and sinful. And you see those two things in the cross meet and reconcile. And if you consider yourself a Christian, then the whole of your life is just owning that simple truth. And you will know that you started to get it when you feel both humbled and lifted up because you know that's true of you, right? Then the gospel, you're so bad that God had to die for you. And at the same time, you're so good that God did die for you. That's what this is all about. That's what this passage is about. That Jesus is standing there and he's done these things and he's working them into your life. He represents you before God and he's telling you that this is what God is really like. That he is for sinners and he loves them. And he is just. And he is merciful. And he is kind and patient. So I'll end with this. Um, I don't expect y'all to know this guy's name, but there's a guy who lived about 500 years ago named John Bunyan. I've never read his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's supposed to be really famous. Um, I read uh, a different book of his. It's his autobiography, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's good if you want to just read someone just wrestle with guilt and shame for like 150 pages. I mean, the guy, like... If he, was, if he was alive now, he would be an emo kid. I'll say that. <laughs> like, he's just constantly going back and forth. Um, he, like, he talks about himself. He, says, he talks about how he was, when he was young, he was kind of, kind of a wild youth by Puritan standards. I don't know what that means. He rode a mule on Sunday. I don't know. <laughs> but he wrestled a ton with guilt, a ton. And he never, like, ever felt like God was for him. He didn't feel like that God liked him. Didn't feel like God was on his side. He did religious stuff, but he did it really half-heartedly, mainly out of fear of God. This dude was so paranoid that when he went to church half-heartedly, he would come around the side and go in the side doors because back in the day, you would walk through the main part of the church and there'd be a bell above that as you came in. And he was just absolutely afraid that as he came through that front door, that God was going to cut the cord on the bell and it was going to crash through the floor and land on him. Like, really, like, paranoid, y'all. Which is a good, pretty good metaphor for guilt. Um, but he says that one day his life totally changed. He's walking through a field. There's no music. There's not a sermon going on. He's not listening to, like, a podcast of, like, a really good preacher or anything like that, which deeply offends me as a preacher. <laughs> we had nothing to do with this. Um, he's walking through a field by himself. And... Into his mind, maybe the work of the Holy Spirit here, he, hear, he just kind of feels the sentence or hears the sentence that your righteousness is in heaven. That your righteousness is in heaven. And he suddenly understands in this profound way that Jesus is for him and he's at God's right hand. That wherever he was, whatever he's doing, that God cannot say that John Bunyan is not right with me. Because in the person of Jesus, John Bunyan's righteousness is right next to God. Like in the room with him. And Bunyan realizes it's not his good feelings, it's not his thoughts, it's not all the things that he's done. How bad he feels, how much he beats himself up. But this is Jesus. The same yesterday, today, and forever in that courtroom, sitting next to God and saying... He is one of ours. We are for Him. I am His righteousness. Do you ever think about that? That Jesus stands in heaven for people like me and you. Right now, in this moment, Jesus is there. And He is able, whatever you're doing, 
wherever you are, that He is able and He is for you. Do you believe that? I think that's the work of God in our lives, for the whole of our lives, to believe that and rest in it. As always, that's my invitation to you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would work this truth into our lives and into our hearts. Lord, that we would know that Jesus stands ready to save us. Lord, that he stands now to reconcile us to you, that he loves us, that he is for us. God, that he is our hope, that he is our surety. Lord, that we will be with you and that you will wipe away the tears from our faces. You will heal our brokenness and our sin. God, you will make all things right in the world. God, because he has died on a cross, he has wept our tears for us. He has paid the penalty of our sins and he's been raised to new life. Lord, I pray you help us to live in the life that Jesus gives us. I pray you help us to move towards that because you move towards us. In your name we pray, amen. Yeah,